Hi, I'm Andrew Sheps, and welcome to episode 60 of Andrew Talks to Awesome People. And this week's awesome person is truly awesome, Manny Marikin. I've known him for years. I learned how to pronounce his name, and we get to speak. Here we go. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, and Monday is Manny Day. Hey, Manny. <laughs> yeah. How are you? I'm good, man. Now, for, let's just start out and make sure everybody knows how to pronounce your last name correctly. Well, if you're uh, if you speak Spanish, it's Marroquin. You got to roll the R's. I can't roll my R. If you're Andrew Shabs, you say Marroquin then. <laughs> Marroquin, so not Marroquin. It's Marroquin, but you Marroquin. can say Marroquin. Yeah, All right. You know, imagine the first day in school, and they're getting close to the M's, and they're like, "Oh gosh, they're gonna screw it up." And then they go, <laughs> my name, my real name is Manolo, like the shoe. Manolo. All right. Like Manolo Blahnik, and a, a kid couldn't couldn't pronounce it, and Manny since I was twelve, but I was like, oh no, the teacher's gonna butcher it, and she would say, Manolo Mannequin. I'm like, very <laughs> oh, Manolo and the mannequin. Fuck. Manolo uh, Mannequin. That is fucking Manolo genius. Manic. That has <laughs> to be. That's your. That's your like <laughs> underground band name, isn't it? Oh, ooh, yes, the the mannequins. <laughs> Manolo Mannequin. That's brilliant. So, so Marroquin or Marroquin is fine. I'm used right. to it. All right. Well, so, but the, the, the genesis of this is that you were not born in the States. As much as you seem to be an absolute fixture in Los Angeles, you were born in Guatemala. Guatemala. Yeah, right? man. Central America. A lot of people, they don't teach you a lot of geography in the States, so they think it's by Brazil. It is not by Brazil. It's, a, it's, it's in Central America. <laughs> south of mexico which is only a we're only a country apart but yeah but it seems like a you know uh it should be farther than what it is and uh yeah came here when i was nine years old uh with my mom and my sister my mom uh packed up i remember this like it was yesterday we packed up uh, our little condo and i was like why are we packing everything it's like oh no no we're going to disneyland we're going on vacation to california and so she had been a nurse her whole life and uh was in charge of one of the main hospitals there and at the time there was a huge huge uh during the cold war uh, the russians and the americans used uh they were you know funneling yeah weapons. proxy battles basically yeah, yeah they were they were you know uh, uh giving the uh, the rebels some some guns and uh, and the United States was backing up the government. So, they, you know, it's like a mini Vietnam what was happening. Uh, a lot of people are not aware of that. So anyways, we uh, they would, you know, kidnap the nurses and uh, the rebels and, and basically take them to the uh, highlands and to treat the uh, injured. And then, you know, they then they would rape them and kill them. So uh, my mom was so proud of being Guatemalan. She didn't want to leave until her best friend, they kidnapped her best friend. and. And at that point, she was like, all right, I'm out of here. Wow. So we were, we were able to get on the plane, you know, nine years old. We were going on vacation to California. We're going to Disneyland. We get on the plane. We land. I got a little airsick. I'd never been on the plane before. Land in LAX, and I see the uh, the, the restaurant, you know, the, the uh, I forget the name of it, but over at LAX. And uh, and we never went back. And, uh, and then that's, that maybe a year later, we had, you know, if you came in between this date and that date, you got automatic uh, residency and you were considered sort of like a war refugee in a way. If you came from that region, from Guatemala, Salvador, and Nicaragua, which uh, were the hard-hitting uh, Yeah. Places. 
And here, here we are. I never went back. So I always joke that even on the worst day in my in the studio, uh, I'm like I'm still on vacation. You know? <laughs> <laughs> still so waiting you, to go to Disney World, but you know, yeah, whatever. Go, oh, that's a whole other funny story. And we we ne ne never quite made it to Disneyland. And my sister and I were like, "What the hell? We want to see Mickey Mouse." <laughs> And did so, you have yeah. to go through a whole asylum procedure when you showed up, or you just showed up on the tourist no, visa? And, because and she wasn't, so she was in charge of the hospital. So they gave us a visa, you know. Right, visa. right. And, and my my uh, my mom's best friend, which is my, like my aunt, she married a very successful restaurateur. She he had a he they sponsored us. So between having a travel visa and them sponsoring us, she was able to get you know. Uh, we were coming here on vacation, but she knew she was never going back. You know? Right. And she didn't tell you guys that you weren't going back. No, no, we were coming, you know, we're going on vacation. Cali, baby, you know. So when uh, did you find out you weren't going back? I mean, was it like on the plane or was it after you'd been there no. for a while? Or So get this, we landed on a Thursday. I, I don't know why I know all this, but uh, we landed on a Thursday. Our first meal was Chinese food. I never even know. <laughs> that was like, this is all foreign. Uh, and, uh, and then by Monday she had enrolled us in the local school and we're like, what do you, why are we, why do we have to go to school? We're on vacation. And she's like, no, 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 if you learn how to speak English, when we go back, you'll be better off cause you'll get better jobs and this, this and that. So we like, all right, screw it. So imagine the first day of school. I was just, you know, I was nine years old and speaking, wow. you know, you see, I didn't speak a word of English and being in the corner because they put us in the corner. ESL, they call them. English as second language. They would put us in the corner and some of the kids that were bilingual, they would come and try to, you know, try to uh, translate some of the, the stuff. And man, it was talk about culture shock. Wow. Yeah. So how long did it take before you realized, like, you're staying? I think it was a few months in because when she got a she got a job like immediately she's like hey I gotta get a job just to get uh you know just to help pay for the trip help pay for the vacation <laughs> vacation <laughs> an expensive vacation so uh, and then she told us she's like you know we're we're just not going back you know and then right. she explained look we would see stuff that was I mean no nine year old no kid should ever see stuff like this I mean you know you see it in the movies but when you see it firsthand it's like oh. My Gosh, I mean, there was a government uh, about fear. So all the newspapers, imagine going to 7-Eleven, right? Uh, any store. And then you're buying candy or soda, water, whatever you're buying. And there's like, remember the Inquirer and the Post or what? those type of, you know, paper uh, back. Uh, and you see a face of like his head, like literally half of it gone. And and all blood. I mean, it was like all fear. Like this will happen to you if you join the rebels or something. So wow. you see, like, nasty. It was almost like I remember my mom would always try to you know cover our eyes any, anytime we went any to any place that was selling anything because all the magazines were on display. It's almost like public execution in a way without right know, execution. <laughs> But uh, wow. the yeah, yeah, it was sweet. so we were just and you know the things that we would see while we were on the bus. I mean, it, uh, it was just crazy. I'm glad. I'm so, here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no shit. We're glad you're here too. Um, so, given given that, and for I guess for the moment, sort of ignoring the Civil War portion of it, are there bits of your childhood from there, like culturally with music and things like that, that really stuck with you? Had you had you started playing drums? Had you discovered any of that about yourself before you left? 
the, you know, it's interesting because one thing about Latin America is there's a, the the music culture is you know it's it's there. It's uh, I don't know. I don't want. I don't know if it's bigger or I don't. It's more it's, entwined in the daily. It's more entwined in things outside of music than other exactly. places. Like, yeah. Listen, it's uh, weekend parties, soccer, music, and no particular order. That's really <laughs> what it is. You know, it's like. Um, so my dad's side of the family, they were all musicians. I remember, you know, them throwing parties and playing. I, uh, one of my earliest memories was sitting next to a, a set of congas and bongos and one of my family members was playing them and they were all, and it was like this, and I just kind of sat right, ne right next to them, you know, and I just, I remember if I, if I could paint or something, I, or draw, I could easily draw it because it's so vivid. Uh, and he's just playing, he had, he had a little fedora and he's playing and I'm like just watching them, my cousin's playing guitar and the other one's playing sax and they're probably really shitty musicians, <laughs> but they loved it, you know, because I was a crappy musician, but loved it love love loved it so i didn't you know so i it would happen every weekend you know like that was like normal to get together drink watch some soccer eat and play right so i remember that being a very very you know part of my you know my young life at the time you know right and were you able to do any music when you first got to la or not really right no so not, not really no i didn't really you know, my, 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 uh, I, I came here right around 11 or 12. My, my sister had a boyfriend. I, I don't even know if she, you know, I'm supposed to talk about that because he was not a really good kid. But anyways, he was a, he, he was a boxer, amateur boxer, right? So he would like, every time I, after school, he would like show me moves and he's like, yeah, this, this, and he was kind of like training me in a way, right? So I'm like, oh, I like it, you know, like. I, maybe I can beat up some of the kids that are bullying me. Okay, cool. So we, uh, so then we had a couple like amateur fights, which were not even, you know, I don't know if they were sanctioned or anything. It was just some street fights, I guess, with headgear and gloves. And I remember like beating a couple kids. And I remember this one kid just punched me so hard that knocked me out. And I remember seeing for the first time, seeing little dots and stars, you know? And from that moment on, I'm like, the next day, I picked up some drumsticks and started playing drums. <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's ex that's exactly how it happened. And I was like, so then I started playing drums and uh, and then just you know roll and rolled in the um, in middle school and went for a band and stuff like that. But I, you know, I always wanted to play. You know, I just wanted to. I wanted to look cool with those drumsticks in the back pocket walking around school, you know, like. <laughs> there's a there's a documentary, I actually watched it last night called Count Me In that's about drummers. I think it just came yeah. out, but it seems like it was shot a while ago. And there, it's funny, I, Taylor Hawkins and Chad Smith and a bunch of these other guys are talking about like the moment, like, I'm a drummer. And not when they were good, like just when they very, very first started, it was like, oh, right, this is what I'm doing now. And Stephen Perkins, exact same way. I gotta watch that. That's so like, it, it's it is yeah. funny how you just kind of get that burst. Now, obviously, you were concussed at the time, but I think that's fine. It probably helped. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was fun, man. Hanging out with musicians. You know, I grew up in, I, I, 
you know, I used to say Hollywood and, uh, and then people thought it was very Hollywood thing to say, which it is. So I started saying Hollywood because I <laughs> literally grew up in the hood in Hollywood. So there wasn't like a lot of good kids around. There was a lot of, you know, gang activity and stuff like that around me. So I feel like I never was that. I was just guilty by association. But um, I feel like drums kind of took that away as an excuse to not hang out because I had a practice and I had my right. little pad and, and and the kids would see me with drumsticks. So it was almost like a defense mechanism for me to, uh, you know, to not, to have an excuse not to hang out. Because everyone, you know, it's funny because everyone wants, you, wants to see you get out of, you know, that world, but no one wants to, like, make the move, first move. So, you know, I would have my drumsticks. Oh, man, I got to go practice. They're like, man, Screw you. Oh, fuck you, man. All right, fine. We'll see you later on. You know, as opposed to, no, you ain't going nowhere. <laughs> you right. Know, so it kind of gave me that excuse to kind of, you know, do my own thing and practice a lot and, you know, and hang out with other types of kids. And, you know, the, you know, as you know, musicians at that, at that young of an age are exploring and trying to find themselves. I think that's such a crucial age, right? Around, you know, 11 through 13 as a young boy you know you're really trying to fi find an identity uh different than when you turn 17 18 yeah so it gave me a good opportunity to you know to hang out with some good kids you know? right and so you were consciously using it for that too like this was a good way to avoid getting well, sucked think, in you know now that i know what i know now maybe not so much consciously but subconsciously i kind of didn't want to be in that sort of world you know um so I think that I used that as an excuse, but I genuinely wanted to play drums too. So right, right. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be a good drummer, uh, but it was fun, man. It was fun. Uh, I, uh, you know, I that was that's all I did for many years, and uh, and then um, I went to I took private lessons, you know, and uh, and then I. In high school, I went to, I ended up going to this school called Hamilton High School. Dude, you've got to tell the story about your audition getting yeah. in there. That's one <laughs> of my favorite stories. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so the first day, uh, while I was in middle school, this guy, James Burke, comes to uh, sixth period, which was our, our band class. And he comes in and says, look, I'm starting this great school, LAUSD. It's going to be like fame. <laughs> Uh, which is like LaGuardia, New York. All we're gonna do is music, and you're gonna take all your, you know, math and science and all that. Yeah, but you're you're gonna be going to school from eight to five, and it's gonna be the best thing that's gonna happen to your life. And come and audition this date, right? And again, that was another way for me to, because my home schools were either gonna be Hollywood High or Fairfax High, and at the time, I just knew too many kids there, and I knew that if I went to high school there nothing good was going to come out of it so this was again the perfect excuse to kind of get out so because it was all the way out and close to cheviot hills beverly wood if you know la robertson by the one by the tent so way far from hollywood so i went first day auditioning i thought i was a pretty good drummer they, uh, there was i think 50 drummers uh, auditioning and they were only going to pick I think 15 or 16 right and we have this long bench and then there's a room the band room and you know we had to wait in line and you see all the drummers like you know with their <laughs> stick and like on their knees you know like um, and I remember this kid right next to me he goes in and he's 
So you could hear someone playing, right? But you couldn't obviously see them. So you hear this that. Like, fuck, that sounds amazing, right? So I'm uh so this kid comes out and he's like, next, and he points to me, and I'm like, I'm like, hey man, was was that you playing in there? He goes, Yeah, yeah. How was it? Like, oh my gosh, it was fucking amazing. I couldn't believe that a kid that was going to high school could play like that. I'd never heard anything like that. You know, it was maybe on stage, you know. I was so nervous, I blew my audition. I, I completely blew it. I mean, thankfully, good enough to make it. But, um, you know, from that point on, you had to uh, you had to write a major minor, you know. And, and this kid, I couldn't get him out of my head. I'm like, man, this guy really fucked me up. So drumming would have been my, quote, major. But I'm like, I, I'll never be that good. I just will never, ever be that good. So, like, looking, it says... Uh, music production and I checked that as my major well the drummer happened to be Abe Laborio Jr. (laughs) (laughs) one of the greatest second drummers right so thanks Abe I love that and he he's in the documentary too and he's talking about when he was a kid and I can't remember if it was that he got his first drum kit when he was five or if this was going on when he was five but he was saying when he was really young his dad would sit down on the kit and show him a beat and then say all right now you play that and then he'd go get his bass because obviously his dad's one of the greatest bass players in the world. So he was jamming with his dad when he was, you know, an embryo, basically. That's a, yeah. He was listen. He's the <laughs> nicest, one of the nicest human beings, and and we every time I see him, I thank him for you know, killing my drum <laughs> career because that's that's how I ended up in the studio. You know? So you just chose it. Did you have any idea even what it was at that point? Zero, zero. You just they knew just, it wasn't a performance thing, so I'll be cool. Yes, yep. It was definitely not a performance. And, you know, listen, naturally, I was always a shy kid. You know, a lot of insecurities about, you know, my English and how I would communicate with people at the time. So I was definitely a lot shyer for the for those reasons, too. So for me, anything that would require being behind the scenes, I was definitely more, you know, I don't know, more open to it than being out in the front and having such a good drummer like, oh, listen, I wanted to be the best and I knew that I, I was never going to be the best if he was around. So I called some of my friends to pop his kneecaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think no, he had his own friends, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, uh, so music production was just about, you know, at the time, those, you know, I was a big hip hop fan, of course, but I also grew up listening to a lot of rock. So, you know, hip hop around me, it was a lot of programming happening. So yeah, music production, the description was basically just making beats and doing producing stuff you know so that was probably why i checked that box because i wanted to really understand beat making you know and uh and 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 it was it was the greatest fucking move ever in my life uh because i learned how to you know uh my teacher at the time david sears uh, which is still to this day one of my mentors he, um, you know, we had four stations, MIDI stations. This is, a, you know, this is pre-Pro Tools. And we had so this a, is what, like late 80s? Uh, yeah, yep, 87 maybe. Right. 87. Uh, so we wouldn't, you know, we had an uh, HR-16 and leases. We had a DX7, Oberheim keyboards, a TX81Z, Yamaha, and XPX90. And stuff then like what, that. like an Atari? What was the sequencer for it? Atari 1040 ST. ST yeah. <laughs> Simpty track, yeah. 
uh, and uh, we had a and we had a little Ramsa twenty four by eight and a, a eight track Tascam quarter inch, I believe. So you know he uh, they were you know we all had you know four stations. We had headphones, and there were only eight kids in the class because no one wanted to, you know everyone wanted to play. No one wanted to do any production, so there was only eight kids. So we would uh ha we you know we do each one of us would do half an hour in the station and we would you know sh showed us how to save on the floppy and open the session and all that and uh, and our our class was just to fuck around play play whatever program that's it and then Fridays we would listen to each other and kind of clap or whatever you know and then one I remember one day I don't know what how long into the year it was but David comes over listens to it and he goes oh cool now you gotta dump it onto uh tape and mix it and i'm like what do you mean <laughs> like it's like well you know the real to real yeah i didn't even know what it was he's like oh you put it in here and this is how you ping pong and you know kind of took the time to explain it and 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 we brought it over you know to the desk and like and him changing i'll never forget him changing the frequency on the ramsa board and listening to it and and just a few minutes before, or you know, me programming it and playing it, and and I will never forget changing the emotion of whatever that was completely a different emotion from it. And I remember from that point on, I was like, "Fuck, you can actually change emotion based on frequency." You know, I'm 15 years old at the time, and that to to this day blows my mind. You know, like I can change your 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 not behavior but your emotional state. You know, by manipulating frequencies and that to me yeah to this day just blows my mind so i was like shit this is what i want to do for the rest of my life as corny as it sounds i knew that this that i was hooked you know yeah and that was it from that point on you know single mom living in the one bedroom apartment with my sister in hollywood uh, I would go to the guitar center on Sunset and Gardner and play with the four tracks and the eight tracks and you know they had the cassette and and I would put the headphones on and you know they give you pre-recorded things and you know so you can listen to it and, and I play with the faders and the, the you know they had like a low and high you know and and I spent hours in the in the guitar center on you know the weekends sometimes on the week uh, weekdays and and I was just kind of obsessed with manipulating sound you know but very but very emotional more than just manipulating sound. I do remember that conscious, like, oh, I want to feel like mad and I would do certain levels to feel aggressive, you know? And, and then I would do the opposite, you know, on the same song. You know, same wow. Thing. Yeah. And it was, um, and it was great cause I discovered something that I never, ever, I never knew it even existed. And you know, and at the time, you got to remember that the, the stereotype of a uh, engineer was the guy with a cigarette, you know, with a you know long hair ponytail. Nobody that looked like me, you know. <laughs> so, so it was uh there was not a lot of people that you could look up to. Uh, but I didn't really care. I just kind of wanted to do it. So, in high school, when I made it to, to Hamilton, we. Uh, I would go and shadow different studios, you know, and I remember shadowing, you know, Dave Pensado at the time, you know, like. So did was, they just have relationships with different studios and put you in touch? Uh, yeah, yeah, yep, yep. They would, uh, you know, they had a great program where they, you know, they had professionals coming in, and if you showed interest, they would call you, and 
uh, I don't remember how I got the uh, music animals uh, at the time it was called music animals uh, intern and not even internship it was just me hanging out in the corner and learning how to uh, uh, align the machine uh, eight pseudo eight uh, 800 right me as a, I was 16 aligning machines tape machines you know, which is you know. like the coolest thing on the planet when you're learning it when you're learning as, as it be still being in high school I mean that's like being in the studio was the greatest thing in the world you know uh, I remember seeing Teddy Riley and Guy and you know and guys like Dave Pensado and Dick Griffin at the time and I would just be in the corner just absorbing it all you know man then they would ask me to go get food and I'd go get them food you know and and uh, or coffee or whatever you know um, and then I would then the guy would show me how to align the tape machine so that got me my first official job learning how to align a tape machine you know <laughs> at the time I mean uh, for you kids today <laughs> you got it easy <laughs> Uh, no need to tape a line or know anything about biasing and all that. Thank God. Uh, but, um, yeah, so then um, learning that at an early age prepared me for, you know, to, to what the, that next sort of step. So, in you know, being a senior, we were a really, really good school. Uh, so good that by the time I was a senior there, all the LAUSD schools were complaining that they were just too good and they would take all our best players, you know, <laughs> from the neighborhood to go there, which is true. So we kicked their ass every year, right? They were always competing for second. Right. You know, we were going, we were traveling to Philly, Seattle, and we're doing national competitions, you know, not let alone, we were just killing everyone. So, you know, so that culture started early being around the best of the best, you know, uh, whether it's sound, uh, being in the studio, or playing, or music theory, or piano, and, and that really laid the foundation to to uh, what to this day helps me, you know, make some better decisions. So, having said that, every kid that was at Hamilton, we pretty much all got accepted to any music school in the country that we wanted to go to. Pretty much, you know, besides like Juilliard or one of those, but. Um, <clears throat> You know, so they, they would offer partial scholarships and grants and full scholarships. And so I remember having a few of those. Look, again, I just got to this country maybe 10 years, not even 10, maybe eight, nine years before that. And here I am going, you know, getting ready to go to college. And uh, I don't think David Sears remembers this conversation or maybe he doesn't want, it'll get him in trouble if he had <laughs> But I go to him. I go listen, and he knew by the, by the time I was a senior, I had the the, the key to the you know the, the the lab. You know, he trusted me with that because I would show up at seven in the morning, an hour before, and just fuck around. You know, he saw something. Yeah, like I was really, really, you know, dedicated. And he's like, "Yep, here's the key," because I'm not getting here at seven. <laughs> you know, so uh, so then I was in charge of the the lab, and and. Uh, he knew I wanted what I wanted to do. So I showed him this list of schools, right, that I wanted to go to. And I go, I want to be a mixer. Which school should I go to? And what were you looking at at that point? Because, I mean, like, Berkeley, Miami, yeah. where yep, else? Yep. Cal Arts, Cal Arts, uh, Berkeley for sure. Uh, uh, it was SC. SC was, like, taking a lot of Hamilton kids. Right. Um, maybe, um, gosh, I can't remember the couple other schools that I was looking into. Um uh, but yeah, those type of schools. Uh, I love Cal Arts. Uh, I, I think that that's where I really wanted to go because a lot of my friends were going there too. 
and at SC, like, you know, half the class was going to either one. But anyways, we, um, you know, he shows me and he goes, don't go to any of them. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, don't go to any of them. If you want to be a mixer, go make the best, learn how to make the best coffee and, you know, and go learn it in the studio. And I was so shocked that he would say that, you know, but I thought that's genius though, because that's exactly what I'm going to do. So I passed on a few things and I went straight and, and you know, I went to this, this, this like short engineering program, but basically, basically to help me learn how to fucking write a resume didn't really teach me much, you know, right. just to get me a, a proper job at a studio, you know, and that's exactly what I did. That's exactly what happened. And I got hired at Enterprise Studio as a, as a runner. So was your mom cool with this? No, of course no, not. No. Like, <laughs> she was crying. She's like, Mijo, what I know. You have to go to school. And no, she was not cool with it. She wow. Like, and I mean, I suppose. So do you remember anyone else who's in the production program at that point, like who's still around or who else was at the school then other than Abe? Yeah. So, so we, you know, we had Michael Lozano there. Uh, right. Warren. Trevor Lawrence uh, we had a ton of people that are working uh, but for me uh, you know we for, for me it was just about trying to get in the studio however I could you know and uh, and then going back to this music animals gig I mean the fact that I was able to tape you know learn the uh, studio etiquette uh, Tom Brown uh, over at Enterprise saw that on my resume and goes because it was down down the street and he knew the guy and uh he hired me as a runner and i was like that was like i i always say the best and worst day of my life because i'm really <laughs> wiping counters and not cleaning toilets but you know almost and you know but then i'm a, one of the best studios in the world right yeah my mission was to you know get out of the running game as soon as possible so I went up to the uh, the tech Dan at the time, and I became really good friends with him. I would buy him beers every Friday, and he loved me and loved that. And we would hang out, and we became kind of cool friends. And and he, you know, and I would ask him if he would let me borrow the SL manuals. I don't know if you remember the little binders. Back oh yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so I would take those home and I would read them. I didn't learn shit because I didn't know what the hell it was, <laughs> right? But I was reading and learning about it and i would go in you know back then the you know studios were these sonic temples the runners just couldn't walk into a room that's like it was like holy land <laughs> you know like yeah and you had to pay your dues so we couldn't really and enterprise you know, was was stricter than some too i mean tom oh, that that yeah. was run yeah by the book by the book yeah, yeah yeah and i and i i, I like that you know I, at the time i really really liked the uh you know the, how disciplined it was. You know it was ran like a professional studio, and uh, and you know next thing you know we uh, you know I would I would go to Tom every week. I'm like, hey man, can I shadow? Can I shadow? Because I had been sh shadowing before, and he's like, nope, nope. I mean there had been dr uh, runners there for two years I hadn't shadowed, and here I am a month and a half into it, and I'm already asking. He's like, nope, nope, nope. Told me no maybe 50 times, right? And I'll never forget, I was in the kitchen making a cappuccino for a client. He comes in, Tom Brown, he's like, hey, buddy. <laughs> I'm like, hey, uh, how well do you know the room? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, remember you said you wanted a shadow? I'm like, yeah. How well do you know the room? I'm like, I know it very well. 
It's like, cool, do you want to do a session? You know, uh, I'm like, hell yeah, put me in, coach. <laughs> this is the moment I had been waiting for, right? And uh, we go to Enterprise Studio Studio C. Uh, and, uh, you know, beautiful room. And, of course, I don't know shit about it. I don't, I don't even know where the knob, the volume knob, you know, pot is, you know. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. So I lied. So the clients are coming in in 20 minutes. It, you, you could tell it was the last minute booking and he couldn't say no to it based on an assistant. So might as well get the booking, right? Throws me in there and I'm, I'm like, what am I going to do? I don't even know how to patch. I don't know. And you're like, assisting. You're not ghosting. I, I am assisting. <laughs> and this is the moment where like, you know, the, the red pill or the blue pill, right? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm sitting there like, okay, do I tell him that I don't know what, what I'm doing or do I fake my way through oh fuck what do i do what do i do and boom they walk in and i they came in it's like hey man what's up man they go hey man listen it's a pleasure meeting you and i'm looking at the phone and i'm like i gotta i gotta tell you something I, this is my first session this is uh i don't know what i'm doing here um and uh, and i look i pointed to the phone i'm like but that phone then the head the chief tech here is 20 seconds away. He knows that anything we need, I will. he will be here in 20 seconds and we'll get through the session. But one thing I'm going to promise you is that I'm going to be the best assistant engineer you've ever had. That's exactly what I said. Wow. And the guy looks at the artist and they both look at each other. He goes, man, this kid got some balls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's just keep them. And they kept me, and uh, and they became regular clients, and uh, it was funny because then, then you learn on the job, you know. And then Dan was very instrumental in showing me, hey, this is how you patch this microphone, and and you know, just learn on the on the on, on the fly, you know. And uh, and that was sort of like the first time I was allowed to be in the session. As wow. The uh, so I don't recommend doing that. But <laughs> and did you did you manage to stay as an assistant then, or did you drop back down to runner for a bit? And so you know, Tom was so impressed. I went back to running, and then he, you know the guys loved me. You know they were like, "Hey, let's get Manny again." And then he kept hearing like, "Oh, well, people are requesting you." And and then he would put me on another session here and there. And I remember one of my first sessions was uh, uh, Jimbo Jimbo Barton. Uh, we were doing Queen Strike. So, uh, so then Jimbo loved me too and kind of just, but you know, there were maybe three or four, five, yeah, maybe three or four runners that had been there for much longer. And of course, if you can imagine what yeah. that problem was, but I was okay with it. I, I didn't care. I, I wasn't there for, for them. Uh, and they realized like, oh, maybe we should learn the fucking SSL, <laughs> you know, maybe we should be taking these manuals home. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I just had the blinders on, you know, and uh, I just I was just going for it. You know. That's awesome, man. And so, <laughs> and when when you look at your credits, you mentioned working with Queensrÿche, like that bit of at the very beginning of your career and what was going on at Enterprise is kind of missing. And when you look at the credits, like I guess you weren't getting assistant credits, but there are a ton of bands like that that you work with. So the yeah, you did a yeah. lot of live band tracking, right? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's. Uh, I finally, well, we were talking with, I, I just saw John Marie the other day and we were, he, he was there. He's one of the first guys I met who I think I was making him a cappuccino at one point. Uh, and we talked about how when I was working at Enterprise, they were doing a lot of rock bands, a lot of like the, the tail end of the hair bands, right? 
uh, and it was like Winger, Tesla, Queenstrike, uh, Rat, uh, Cinderella, and all those bands, right? And I worked with a lot of them assisting, and, and with Jimbo, what we would do is, you know, he was really in the miking techniques, and, you know, and just... And I would run out and those, you know, I'd move a mic two inches to the right and then I would run back in the control room and Jimbo would be like, you know, fucking cigarette, he'd be like, oh, hear that? No, no, we need more click on that. Move move the uh, RE20 maybe two inches to the, to the left and two inches forward. I go out there, boom, boom, and then I'd run back and hear the, di- I'd hear the difference and I did that for months and months and months and... I got to tell you, that's, I think that's how I learned how to EQ, you know, uh, knowing, uh, knowing mic techniques and what you're trying to get from that. And that's what I tried to do with EQs. I mean, we all do that. So, uh, but I, I feel like I really learned the art of EQing through miking things, you know, uh, and listening to the room, you know, like, um, so yeah, so yeah, I, I don't know why it's missing from my this you know my discography or anything like not but not on purpose. I just you know it's been such a long time. Yeah, I don't ever get to think about that you know or or even you know. So this is like you're go, taking me back you know to, like I'm like at that moment right now, kid with long hair and <laughs> <laughs> fitting right in. Yeah, man. But then they became probably one of the, not the first, but one of the early studios to start doing a lot of the R&B and the hip hop as that became major label, big money stuff, right? Well, yeah, Nirvana came and kind of fucked the whole thing up, you know, for for those bands, unfortunately, because there's great musicians and amazing, amazing uh, bands uh, and just it just shifted. I, I I don't think I've ever seen a shift quite like that. Being like young and in the industry, a shift where all the bands that were at Enterprise they all just boom hit a brick wall. Not yeah. even like a, a fence. No, they hit a brick wall. And guys like Bo and Bo Hill and a lot of those rock producers, it just just stopped. So then. I think at the time R&B and hip hop was, you know, becoming a little more popular, more it became pop. Those were the, the records that were selling and they, those were the, the ones that could afford a place like Enterprise. So, you know, a lot of more R&B hip hop stuff started coming through. So I feel like I was at the perfect time, perfect moment for me to learn from those records, but then go right into, you know, doing hip hop and West Coast hip hop, you know. So I had like the best of both worlds, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that paradigm shift it's it is hard to imagine, but it it was like on a dime. And I think back in the the sixties, the equivalent was the day the Beatles played for the first time in the states, and right. all the independent songwriters were out of work because bands now had to write their own music. I mean, and that's why Neil Diamond was an artist. It's why so many people became artists because they couldn't be songwriters anymore. They had to sing their own stuff. So, yeah, huge shift. And and you'd think, like, oh, well, now Enterprise will start doing grunge bands. But no, that was not done in major studios in the major markets. Yeah, you know, and they all stayed up in the Northwest, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there was a huge shift. And, uh, you know, it was great because for me, someone young, you know, uh, having the uh, – the assisting engineering experience from live instruments uh, going to now EQing an 808 and uh, 
miking up, not miking up, plugging in an MPC, you know. It was, uh, I feel like it was just the right, the perfect moment for me to learn both art forms, you know. And being there with amazing producers like Battlecat and DJ Quick and seeing them, how they would EQ their own sounds, I mean, that's talk about going to college, right? I'm just sitting in the back and watching them, you know, and, and like, Oh, from you know the hitman to Mario Winans to Stevie J and all the Puff guys, I mean they were coloring you know and it was man it was amazing to see and, and when people at the time uh, wouldn't respect that art form I was I was in it and I could feel the emotional change that was happening from them blending and balancing and EQing and compressing and and, and I saw it firsthand it's, and then I was hooked as well you know. Right. So you had no, like, I mean, what were you listening to at that point? Well, you're working with all the hair bands. You're, you're not listening to hair bands, are you? You know, I don't know if I was listening to them uh, as much as, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's funny because you asked me 10 songs that, uh, that change or. Yeah. Yeah. That I love, right? And, and, it's, and a, it's a pretty rock heavy. Yeah, you know. it, it's funny, and I was gonna bring that up because when I was working on it, I thought, "Oh wow, this is like a very rock-heavy list." But I didn't, you know, the way I did the list, it was I did more things that kind of shape my life, I guess. You know, not necessarily things that I love as a mix or yeah, you know, Stairway to Heaven. You know, although a great song, I, I never judged the mix. You know, I never even listened to the mix, to be honest with you. But I remember that was the first song I played when I was in middle school in front of people. You know, it was like my buddies, we said we practiced it for three weeks and we played it at the uh, whatever graduation, you know. And how'd that go? It was uh, incredible. I mean, I remember the feeling of, uh, and I remember Trevor, Trevor Lawrence, which is still a good friend, great drummer. I remember him coming because he was an amazing drummer and he's a maybe a year or two younger than me. And he comes up to me and goes, man, you played your ass off. And that, that was the biggest compliment because him and I, you know, I got a whole different story with him. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was like the best compliment at the time. I was like, man, one of the drummers that I respect the most, he's younger and he's way better than me, you know, complimenting on playing Stairway to Heaven, you know. So that was like, because Bonham was like, dude, that was my idol, you know. Right. So that's, uh, so yeah, it's, you know, I grew up with a lot of musicians, you know, and musicians at the time, they didn't listen to hip hop, you know, it was all like from, you know, all the things that I probably wrote on there from Led Zeppelin to Metallica to Radiohead and stuff, you know, stuff like that, very bandy stuff. So, so I started hanging out with, at Hamilton with just really, really good musicians. But when I would go home, I was hanging out with all the kids that were listening to hip-hop so i feel like i had a balance of both and uh, i didn't have just one or the other you know because i was playing you know a lot of uh, a lot of rock you know i couldn't play hip-hop at the time even though we did start a band <laughs> with a dj you know and, and what, what was the name of that band we're, we're big on high school band names on this show oh my gosh i don't even know if we had a band name maybe it was more we would jam and do house parties so we wouldn't even like we just show up and play. You We're never build as anything, huh? No, it wasn't like a, uh, a, an organized band. We just had a group <laughs> of guys with a DJ, a drummer. And, and it was like, it's funny because when Rage came out, right? It was like the same. We're like, that's exactly what we were trying to do. But, you know, who knows? A few years before, you know, we had a rapper and we were like playing like some 
some like you know riffs you know and he right funk, funk drumming with a rock with some distortion you know and people fucking didn't like it at all especially <laughs> the parties it was boys they were waiting for the dj to come on and play disco or something right <laughs> uh, but uh yeah but it was exactly so so that's why rage is one of my favorite bands of all time because it's it was quintessential la right there that was yeah it. yeah absolutely and doing it without a dj which yeah you wouldn't even know necessarily just listening to the the records like yeah. yeah and the attitude of like someone like zach that we could all relate to being ang really angry young man you know yeah uh, i mean it was the punk of the time definitely yeah, for sure 100 sure. and again being from la that's like you know i'm sure like you were talking about birmingham birmingham and being you know into led zeppelin you have to love led zeppelin because that's what it is right well, you have to love Rage because you're in L.A. This this was the epicenter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and when you were talking about you know the choice between like Hollywood and Fairfax High, like a few years earlier, that's the hotbed. That's the Chili Peppers and Black, yeah. all those bands. But it had moved on. I think it was a little little less like that at that point. Less less of that. Then Hamilton became with Fishbone and a couple of like I think one of the guys from Chili Peppers or. I mean, it was all kind of like, you know, great scene in L.A. at the time. You know? And that was like, it was right before, maybe four or five years before I, you know, got to that level, the high school level. So you could hear all the uh, all the local bands kind of just ripping it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, it's nice also, Fairfax, yeah. it's a really interesting thing where, uh, well, I don't know if it's interesting, but I find it interesting. This, when you're thrown into a school like that, and like you're auditioning right behind Abe Laboreal Jr., I mean, you're with the best of the best on the planet, but within this very small group that you're a real part of. And I think you see sometimes where that generates this drive that's hard to get otherwise. Like it takes, it takes a really special person to be out in the middle of nowhere, not surrounded by people doing what they're doing and not be challenged and still want to be the best in the world at it, as opposed to just the best in their town. A hundred percent. Listen, we, I feel like everyone at Hamilton, we pushed each other and inspired each other that, you know, it's maybe a comparison, by the way, I'm not comparing it us or anybody to say, but the, the comparison in the, uh, the level of in, inspiring each other, like, say bird and and uh and magic inspired each other i mean they were from college and they kept pushing each other to other levels you know and i feel like we all need that we all need that com competitive edge but still friendly too you know so so we were all competing but a really healthy competition you know and i feel like if you like you're right if you're in the middle of nowhere if, if you don't have that level of competition then you know it's it's I don't know if it, it would be a lot harder. To, to yeah, you got to put it all on yourself to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we see it. We were, I mean, I mean, that's what we live, you know, at a young, young age. That's all we cared about. You know, they had an open campus. We could easily ditch and leave school and go to the beach because it wasn't that far away. And But none of us did. We wanted to be there, man. We wanted to compete. We wanted to make each other better. We wanted to learn, you know, like. And that to me was the best environment for someone like myself, you know? Right. That's awesome. So, all right. So you're at um, Enterprise and things start happening. Your work, this is another thing actually that I, I wanted to mention because you worked on a lot of foreign records too. 
And that was a big part of the L.A. studio scene. And a lot of young engineers, like I remember uh, a really good friend of mine who worked at Lionshare, used yeah, to do yeah. Japanese <laughs> sessions all night every night as an engineer. And during the day, he was one of the assistants. But yeah. it was a great place to really be able to work on your skills and and level yeah. up. So you mentioned that because that I feel like that you know I I took pride in like my DSing you know I I would spend a lot of time DSing vocals and I mean I still spend a lot of time uh, without DSing them right uh, but you you know you mentioned doing Japanese records I mean we were all working on Japanese records you know uh, I was at Air LA working on them all night you know like same thing as your guy from Line Share. We were all doing that stuff, and I feel like not knowing the language in uh, Japanese is very sibilant, right? And if you take one of those S's away, then it completely kills the, the language almost. You know, I remember it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> but it, it, it taught me how to control S's without DSing them, you know? And again, it's something that I, to this day, I do, you know? So no one judge you for a mix back then you know as a 20 year old 19 year old you know want to be mixer i would mix these japanese records they pay me a few hundred bucks and and no one judged me for it like my peers never listened to them so it's not like oh man he sucks listen to listen to that mix and it's almost like pre like today's artists pre social media you know right <laughs> so, so now it's like you're under a microscope i feel like anything you do people are they know everything about it, so they'll you'll be judged, and maybe you won't, you know, progress the way you would if you weren't being judged like that. I don't know, maybe positive, maybe negative, but at the time for me, it was really, really amazing that I, I was able to practice on these records that no one heard here, you know. Right. And so what was the, because you also have your like first break on a late night session where it's like, hey, do do a rough. And oh, I think yeah. we'll have you mix the record. So was that, what was that a, a, an American record though? Classic, classic story, right? Uh, where the uh, the assistant had a date with his girlfriend and, and they asked him to do a rough. He's like, fuck it, I'm out of here. And then he goes, hey, you want to do it? And I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> he left like a, Enterprise Studio C, uh, he left, and I was there, he left around 10, 11, I started mixing, this is my shot, you know, I had been mixing Japanese records, so I felt maybe a little comf comfortable and confident on the console, so, uh, you know, I mix it, and it's, oh, gosh, it's maybe the sun was coming out, so five, six in the morning, and the guy, the client, uh, was knocked out in the back of the lounge, maybe in the lounge, yeah. So then uh, I feel like I have something. You know? I feel like, okay, this is the moment. It's 5, 6 in the morning. I go wake him up, comes in the room, listens to the mix. And he's like, fuck. So he picks up the phone and calls his partner in New York, which must have been uh, 8 or 9 in the morning there, right? And he's like, he goes, man, I don't know who the fuck this kid is, but we found someone to mix the record. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting in the back like, you know, uh, of course, it never came out. It got shelved. But so, who but was that, it? Do you remember? It was uh, Estilo. E S T I L O. It was three uh, siblings, two girls and one uh, boy and two girls. Uh, and uh, it was kind of like the early Latin hip hop movement, you know. But just didn't make it. But I remember getting. 
having this confidence like oh damn I, I don't even know these guys and they asked me to do more stuff for them and stuff and they never paid me and that's <laughs> I, and that's how i found my manager that's still management manager <laughs> i'm like hey man there's a few thousand dollars a lot a lot of money at the time for me can you go get it and i'll give you uh, a percentage and he was never able to get it, but he's still managing me. Wow. I guess once he finally gets that money, he's worried you're, that's it. <laughs> that's it, yeah. He's like, I'm never getting that. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's the confidence, man. I feel like our business, it's, it's, a lot of it is, has to do with confidence. and not, not necessarily the ability to do it, but just being confident in how you do it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, well, and getting getting that feedback, like you say, that, oh, yes, in the back of the room. Because, I mean, you must have thought you've done it but until someone says you've done it in this right. industry you haven't yeah. done it yep and it's and you know at the time it's very different from what it is today so um you know at the time you got to get a studio you had to pay you know you were the clock was you know yeah i mean enterprise <laughs> studio c was how much a day back then do you think been at least a couple grand a day i mean yeah you know? I mean, maybe maybe a little less, eighteen hundred. I don't know, but it was definitely not cheap. Yeah, I mean, you just describing the you know starting the mix at eleven and waking the guy up at five to listen to something just gave me horrible flashbacks to that whole yeah. time because that's what you had to do. There was someone else coming in at ten thirty. Yeah, I don't do not miss those days. But you know, as a youngling, man, you know, I used to be I used to go in the studio at ten and leave at six a.m. and do it all over again. Yeah, I'll get my assistant. You know, years later, one of my assistants, uh, I go in and I I have had him taking notes on what the next song or whatever, and I remember looking at him and he looked like shit, man. He's like, I'm like, man, are you okay? Are you getting sick? He's like, nope. He's like, what the what's what's wrong? He's like, man, I'm just tired. You know, we've been doing a lot of sessions. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm like, hey, when was our, our last day? He goes, well, I'll tell you. <laughs> Uh, we're on our 34th straight day, and I'm like, and I feel so bad because I didn't even know that, and I should have known that, and and, uh, and I killed his career for sure. Uh, he went, <laughs> but you just, you know, when you're in the zone, you don't even, like, realize it. You just go for it, and for better or worse, I would never do that today, but back then when you're 20-something and you're yeah. so full of energy, you just go, man. Yeah, just, driving home in morning rush hour the wrong way and yeah yeah, yeah. coming like, back for remember, noon remember the shades people are like man it's it's dark here you should take those shades off it's like uh i haven't slept for three days <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i have a good excuse okay my eyes just are so sensitive to light you know because we're in a dark fucking room for eight, 18 hours a day so yeah those long days don't exist for me anymore because i thankfully learned how to hopefully hopefully work smarter and not harder right 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 well so it's we talked about the transition going from the hair bands to the R&B and hip hop stuff. And it was like full on, like 93. It's the first year, like you've got a decent, mm -hmm. like chunk of credits as an assistant and also as an engineer. And it's the LaFace family Christmas, which, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's going to have every artist Go basically indeed. on the planet. DJ Jazzy Jeff, Bell Biv DeVoe, and there are like five other ones. They were all people now have still heard of them and know what's going on. So you fell right into the middle of yeah. the, some serious, serious shit. 
Yep, yep, I did, I did. I, I, you know, again, I got, you know, right place, right time, uh, right attitude, good work ethic. People see that, you know, we all, we're all looking for that, you know. Um, and at the time, there was a, again, that shift of that hip hop from the Bell Bivivo. I know that Pensado had done a remix that, and then, that, you know, and then I worked with Soul Shock and Carlin that were really, really happening at the time. Because I do give them credit for giving me an early like belief and you know mixing some of their records and I remember the first time I really got a call from people like Rodney Jerkins and guys that were like younger than me saying oh shit man good job on this mix it was uh, this uh, uh, Whitney Houston song Heartbreak Hotel that Soul Shock and Cardinal had produced tonight you know it was like. I remember that I had been mixing a lot of things, you know, from again the Japanese records and some hip hop records and some, uh, and some, um, you know, just stuff that I'd never really quote made it, but I had been getting a lot of practice on. That I feel like that Whitney record came out and it actually sounded pretty good. And that's listen credit to Soul and Car- Carlin, they were great. They're, they are great producers, and um, but I, I remember feeling that okay, you know. Okay, this kid Manny, you know, whoever he is, let's let's hire him, you know. Uh, and I felt that shift where I, my, you know, the phone started ringing, you know. And so, more. what was the transition from just staff assistant to like, you know, well, no, now you're a full time engineer and you're mixing? It seemed that went pretty quick, didn't it? It went, you know, it went pretty quick. It really did because what happened was, so so yeah, so I was a runner for maybe, oh, gosh, maybe three four months. And then I was an assistant, I want to say maybe a year and a half, maybe. Oh, gosh, I'm terrible at this, this stuff. But, uh, and then uh, and then I did, uh, and then Sol and Cardin came in, and we worked on a couple of things for Monica. Uh, it was Monica, TLC, and could have been Belle Biv DeVoe, maybe. Uh, anyways, it was three, oh, Barry, Ma- uh, no, 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 sorry, uh, Barry White, sorry. It was three remixes that they were working on. I remember this, and uh, they had a they they had their mixer, and their mixer at the time didn't really know what to do on the desk. And one thing I got really fast on was that that e console. Like go like go to mix from here and mix. <laughs> I remember all those key commands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really fast with play cuts only, doing the automation. I went in and I learned it and. So then this, this, this mixer didn't know a lot of the SSL, and I was right in the room, and he would ask me, hey, how do you do this? And I would go and go really fast, not to show off or anything. I just wanted to be out of the way and show him. And then so I remember him, like, after the session, he's like, man, you're, you're actually really good. I mean, we're so young. He's like, hey, I got this album coming up. Do you want to mix it with me? Like, fuck yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's that's sort of like that was the transition where we we this girl named Unique, uh, that was her name, uh, and we mixed it at Skip Sailor uh, on Largemont, and we uh, man I remember just being so so into it, and that that was sort of another shift that I never went back to assisting from that session. You know? Right, and that was your first time going to another studio as an engineer. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it could have been one of the first times. Yeah, well, I had been to Air LA because at the time it was cheap, and I would book that because right. I couldn't do it on there. Uh, so I had maybe a couple studios, but this was like the first, like, oh man, he's the mixer type of like, you know, not just you know the engineer or 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 just uh, 
um, you know, the mix. I was the mixer. You know? Right. That, right. That was to me that was such a, an amazing feeling. You know, I still remember it like it was yesterday. That's great. And to be able to just like go because like your first credits show up in 92, 93 and your last assistant credit is 95 and it probably was something you did in 94. And then like, that's it. You're off. I was, (laughs) yeah, my assistant career was over and, uh, and I always wanted to be a mixer. So I was, but I I was still tracking some, you know, I was still doing some tracking too. Well, like you've got an engineering credit on the, the Tom Jones record, um, lead and how to swing it, which was a, gigantic record for him like that was your career is either over or it's going to do pretty well and it exploded i remember that yep yep so i remember that session too so i cut vocals yeah i cut his vocals that was cool nice uh but yeah at the time gosh i'm you know 20 i want to say 22 21 22 you know um shit so you know, again, right place, right time. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, you got to be the right guy in the right place <laughs> at the right time. Yeah, man. You got to, yeah, you definitely. I always say you got to, you're suited and you're in the game. I don't necessarily like baseball that much, but I, but I always, you know, you're going to get called up. You got to hit the ball, you know? Yeah. You, you got to hit the ball. So. Yeah. And, and the, the way to be in the right place at the right time is to be everywhere all the time. Like yeah. you weren't sleeping. You weren't going home. I gave everything and everything, everything to it. You know, there was, an, I wasn't a part-time mixer or, I mean, I lived it from the moment I, you know, and we can all say the same thing from the moment we wake up to the moment we went to go to sleep. That was it. That's all I ever thought about. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about some of the engineers who were in during the hair bands and who you learned from, but who, who were kind of your mixing mentors? Who did you work behind where you really picked some stuff up at that point? Cause you, you went, know, you went into doing it yourself so quickly. You didn't have yeah. a whole lot of time to learn behind people. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't say I had a, a mixed mentor. Listen, I looked up to certain mixers, you know, like obviously Bob Clearmount was like my, my idol, you know, and I think that's who everyone looked up to at the time, not only for his skills, but business-wise, what he had done with, you know, coming from the world of of being a staff producer, engineer, mixer, to being an independent, which opened up, you know, the floodgates for all of us, so many opportunities. So we should be thankful that he was one of the first ones to make those that move, right? Yeah. So, uh, so I never, you know, I never really got a chance. I remember I assisted Dave Pensado maybe a few days, but he, you know, as great of a guy he is, he, I didn't have enough time with him to for him to teach me anything. So, man, it was all, it was all really just on the job training, you know, and just I listen, you know, I never listen to other mixers too. And to this day, I don't listen to other mixes. You know, I I listen to. Uh, I listen to producers like I, I I like what producers do and then you know and then and and different you know so so I don't you know I don't know if you do the same or if you're you know but I don't necessarily like go and listen to other mixers work not because I don't want to or just because I want to I don't know I've never been that so well I think and you can't I, you can't uh, separate it like there there are a few mixers where like Lenoir in the 90s or Chad Blake at times like they're, they're sometimes yeah. you know exactly what they did but a lot of times you're not like what is it you're listening to right 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 
And today it's even harder because there's so many variables, so many things. Because so you, I never judge a mix. You know, I mean, gosh, I hardly ever judge any other mixers. Um, so for me, it was always about learning from other producers, like a Teddy Riley, and you know, and like, <clears throat> you know, people like Teddy really, really became sort of like. And Dre, those two guys were like, man, Timbaland, uh, those really three guys that I really listened to everything they were doing from, you know, from programming to spacing to, to the, the the notes, you know, what happens, what happens between the notes, you know, stuff like that where most people wouldn't notice, you know. I was always conscious of that. Glue and unglue coming from maybe a rock sort of, background uh learning those mic techniques i always wanted to learn the art of how do we glue things and how, how do we unglue them and very mindful of stuff like that so i never really had a mixer that's like this is how it be, this is how i do it you know uh but as an assistant i did work with like barney perkins you know rest in peace which was just seeing him his workflow was incredible obviously jimbo uh you know uh uh, you know Bob Power. I remember you know uh, doing this session with uh, this Michelle and Diego cello session, and I was supposed to be with him for you know two three weeks. And five days into the session, I got a call by Tony Braxton's team to go do some work with Tony to do mixes. You know, so I'll never forget. I remember telling him that you know I just couldn't pass this opportunity. You know, and. And I remember him being super cool, like, yeah, man, go do your thing. Yeah. And then I left his session <laughs> to go mix, you know. So um, so I learned maybe, I don't know if I'd learn anything from Bob, but just his energy, you know. just I, I was only there for three days, but I remember him using certain pieces of gear. But that it's all irrelevant anyways. But it yeah. was more demeanor and his approach to things that I, uh, that I learned more from other mixers. Than say technical and stuff, you know. Or, well, I also love that you describe that you know who you were studying were the producers and especially the producers you mentioned. I mean, because there are a lot of people who've worked with Dre who say he's the best engineer they've ever worked with. His yeah. ability to balance stuff is insane, yeah. absolutely yeah. insane. Yeah. Kind of, I mean, to the same level that Al Schmidt could balance stuff. It's oh. like. Some people can sit down at a console and they look like they're doing absolutely nothing and all of a sudden it explodes. And he's one of those guys. I brought him up, Al, because I think that what I've learned from him is exactly what you just said. It's like the, 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 the just balancing, like the art of balancing, you know, that the people, we forget that there's an art to balancing, you know, and that those are choices that you make and, and they come from within, maybe some conscious and some subconscious decisions that you are constantly making and out by far was the best at that making something look so simple but i don't care who you are you're not going to be able to do it the way he did no and it's it's all about the music too i mean there's so much weird stuff on the internet about gain mm -hmm. structure and like yeah. i don't even it's just insane where you actually there was an interview where you were talking about the like kick snare relationship in a mix and mm -hmm. how 
you need one to make the other feel important and support the other one. And sometimes you want them to overlap frequency wise. And sometimes you don't, sometimes you just want the very tips of them to touch. And it's an amazing way to think about it, but that's like the first sort of visualization of that musical balance thing. I think that I've ever heard that made sense. That was totally different from the way other people talk about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. You hit it on the head. It's like, you know, I always say this is the, if this is the snare and this is the kick, how, you know, are they doing, like you said, are they touching like this? Are they blending like here? Are they here? You know, it's like a visual sort of like how, how, how married this should they be? And that to me, that's the foundation of pop music today is like, how is that kick and snare? Uh, are they married? I mean, how close are they or how close should they be or not? And, uh, yeah. I love the idea of ungluing stuff. Cause you know, everybody's always looking for the glue. Got to get the glue, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Not always. Not always. No, no, no. Sometimes you need the unglue uh, makes you kind of do more of this, where the glue makes you maybe dance slightly different. You know, right? And that's an emotion. That's an emotion. And how? What, what do you move? Do you tap your foot? Do you do it from the heel or the toes? Do you raise it like this? Do you move it forward? I mean, body language, uh, your reactions. Uh, that's that's a that manipulation that we kind of help with, whether it's conscious or not conscious, but you know, how do you, and knowing yourself, you know, knowing that if I tap my foot like this, there's a certain different emotion than me doing this. You know? Yeah. And, uh, I know it's looks silly. like me trying to dance, but, uh, but <laughs> no, it's a, it's a real thing. I remember working with John Barnes and he had this thing where he would move to a track, but mm -hmm. up was on the beat. And I would actually try and do it. And I couldn't do it. I'd always turn it around so down was on the beat. And <laughs> it was just the way he heard and moved to grooves. But he was so sensitive to it. And when it was wrong, that head wouldn't move quite as much. And you knew, like, mm, that's I, not it. You know, it's funny because I, I think we trust ourselves and our bodies to kind of get, kind of guide us too, you know, in a way. Like, okay, when it comes to grooves, I'm the same way. There's like, if, there's something a little off if I'm not moving a certain way. And that's a, a good way to start exploring and why that is. So sometimes it has to do with production. Other times it has to do with you maybe balancing or EQing it or whatever you can do to help that groove. Uh, again, if you think about it, we're not changing any of the notes or adding instruments. We're just coloring with frequencies and levels, you know. Again, it just blows my mind that, we, that, that you can do that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's magic basically. So, all right, so we've managed to get through like the first 4 years of your career, <laughs> which is <laughs> insane. And I know I got to be conscious of your time because you you don't have too much time today. So, obviously there's going to have to be a part 2, possibly a part 3 through 9 or something <laughs> like that. But I want to get let's get up to 1997 cuz I mean like you worked on a Madonna record and things but 97 seems to be kind of a big year because that year you mixed Aaron Neville and On Vogue um Notorious BIG, Gary Barlow, like there's a lot of sort of the next yeah. wave of stepping up seems to happen around then. Yeah, right. Yeah, I remember that. I think it, you know, from 94, maybe 95 to 97 I feel like that's where, you know, people started like really paying attention, noticing. And, you know, I, I always say this, which may, may not be accurate or maybe it is, but I always say when you, you're a young engineer and you happen to do something really cool, then it happens to be like 
a surprise because you're not expecting that, right? Your client is like, oh shit, that's amazing. He did that. Oh wow, that's that's great. But that's once that happens, then you 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 have a kind of like then they hire you again, and now there's an expectation, right? Now now it's like okay, we know you can do it, so now we're expecting you to repeat that. Right, and repeating it is a little harder. <laughs> yeah, because now the pressure's on. Before you were just kind of flowing with your right brain and your gut and your heart. It wasn't you weren't thinking about it. So now the second one, you're thinking about it. Now, now you're setting certain limits, you know. And you're a new athlete, so you're not that disciplined and, uh, yet to know your body, right, or know yourself to to mind to to get you in the right mindset. So. Then you go to the third one and fourth and fifth, and all of a sudden, this bullseye starts getting bigger and bigger on your back because now there's more expectations. Now not only do we expect to, for you to turn in a good mix, but now it's got to be a hit, right? <laughs> and those expectations just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So I feel like between those years, I feel like I just I will suit it up, like we said, suit it up, and I went to the plate and I connected a couple times. I didn't hit home runs, but I made connection a few times. And then, as you know, you get a couple of those clients that believe in that and now it kind of grows, you know, because I remember the clients from uh, Gary Barlow and then did, also did Aaron Neville and, you know, and uh, the whole LaFace camp, uh, Yabium and all those, they started believing and I started being in the room more and from Babyface to, to uh, to even Jam and Lewis, and they started kind of noticing that there was this another kid, you know, that was just doing more, and so that was kind of like a, you know, if you see the stock market, it kind of went like this a little bit, you know, it was <laughs> gradual. But that's like, I think that's, you know, I think I feel like my career has been a gradual, even though there's been a little couple of dips and peaks and stuff, but I feel like it's been there wasn't that one song that just like went from zero to a hundred you know it was always like a next to the next level next level next level and it took listen it took years and you know it's still for me i still think that i'm you know learning everything that i'm you know so uh it doesn't stop never ends yeah well definitely definitely so look let's let's do some q a because i you got like 15 minutes or so i think before you you needed to split so if you're cool with that, and when we come back, we're at like Whitney Houston, basically. Yeah, yeah. So we're still so early, so early. <laughs> I mean, we're what ten years off Kanye still? No, not ten, but you know, there's there's a lot to do. But let's let's get you out of here today, and then uh, I will email you, and we'll we'll find another Monday. Listen, if people want to, like I said, if people want to hear, you know, hear these stories, then let's Dude, go. Dude, they, they do. They do. And what I don't want to do is to, like, skip over a bunch of stuff and we say things generally because I think there are, like, specific stories in there that we got to <laughs> hear. Because, I mean, you know, you're talking about the biggest producers of the time with, you know, LaFace, Gigantic. Yeah, yeah. Jam and Reed, like, you can't yeah. get bigger than what was going on right yeah, then yeah. so I, I don't want to just gloss over it and yeah, say yeah. gosh that was cool <laughs> so with some really you know critical years i think that you know just being in the room with guys like babyface just kind of you know i mean and i like i said i try to learn something from everyone and and i learned so much from from that era because that to me that was like that golden era for me we're coming from 
do I, am I good enough? Am I, do I, can I do this to, oh, now I'm in it. Now, how, how do I, how do I fucking flow and how do I survive and swim through the, the current and people now realizing that people are out to get you in a way that you weren't used to, you know, there's, right. it's a whole different dynamic that goes into when you actually, that target becomes a little bigger and bigger, you know? But you're also, you're at the epicenter, like we talked about grunge wiping away the hair bands, but this is when R&B just Mm -hmm. starts dominating the charts. Because up until then, I mean, it's big, but it's underground. It's not the top 10. And now you couldn't get in the top 10 if it wasn't R&B. Exactly. Yeah, you know, you have like Drew Hill, Boyz II Men at the time, like you said, En Vogue and... You know, uh, next time, part two, I'll tell you the uh, how I ended up with Ann Vogue. Uh, <laughs> all right, all right, hold on. I'm gonna make a note right now that that's where we're starting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a that's a that's a interesting one too. Excellent. All right, let's get Mark in here if he's not asleep. I don't think oh, he's asleep. Mark, he's not asleep. <laughs> he's like these guys. No, no, he's hello, collecting hello. the questions. Exactly. Yeah. So this is like, this is the shortest part one we've ever done. So it's like teeing up big time for part two. It's going to be great. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Let's do it. Sure. Okay. We got a lot of questions coming in. Uh, And for anybody who's watching on YouTube, how we do this, we have a crowdcast room going that's on the site at puremix.net. And you can submit your questions there. People upvote each other's questions. And then we generally start with the most uh, upvoted question on there. So And know that we're probably not going to get to all of them, but we will hold on to the top questions from this one and save them for next time. And, you know, we'll we'll do what we can. And Manny, you just call it when you got to go. Just say last question and that'll be the last question. Okay. Awesome. Okay, so our first one comes from Rez, and he says, "I see Fleetwood. Sorry, I see Fleetwood Mac landslide in your inspiration list, which surprised me. I'm curious, what aspects inspire you in that track?" Well, you know, I feel like that track. Every time I listen to it, I want to kind of cry, you know, because it's a, it's about just life in general, and you know, and listen, and and it shows the vulnerability of getting older in an industry that's that's a young man's sport you know like i compare us to maybe running backs in in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a football team where you know you, you're running man your your body is kind of carrying you and then uh, but you're getting beat up you know constantly and and so therefore you have a maybe a shorter career uh and and for us as we're getting older in the industry i mean gosh we went back to like 1990 which was scaring the crap out of me right now cause <laughs> that's a long time ago uh, I think that that song really reflects on someone's uh, mental state uh, as we're growing older in this industry that we love and you see everything around you kind of moving along as well. And I think that music is about vulner- vulnerability and I feel like that's one of the most vulnerable songs ever. And uh, when I listen to it, it does remind me of, I mean, anybody that listens to it, they, 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 they can, uh, uh, you know, they can, I think they can relate to it even if you're, whatever you do in life, whether you're crunching numbers or being a mixer, you know, it's definitely life goes on and you got to be mindful of what's around you and, and enjoy the journey. So how much of a lyric guy are you? You know, you know, it's funny because when I'm, when I'm, I listen to music in two ways, right? One is like, obviously as a fan, right? And the other one is analyzing it, right? Like, oh, how did that snare and this, and how did that lyric compare to the, 
you know, so I, if I'm a fan, if I'm at home or I'm listening in the car as a fan, I tend to pay attention to the lyrics. But when I'm actually working on things, I'm not necessarily paying attention to the lyrics as much. I am still, but I want to, I want to sort of focus on the whole palette and not just the lyrics. So, um, so I tend to then do a pass, maybe halfway through the mix and do a solo pass on the vocals to kind of see what you know the lyrics are and just pay attention to the lyrics funny so but as a fan you're a lyric guy i don't i wouldn't say a lyric i'm, I'm more if more of a music guy just because musician background but i definitely will pay attention to the lyrics but right i wouldn't say i'm a lyric guy though so i only pay attention if they bug me if they <laughs> stick out <laughs> I, I, yeah man if you you know I think the emotion today, I always say, say you either love it or hate it. Because when you say, eh, it's okay, then that's like the worst thing. You can. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I hate it. Well, there's something about them too. And yeah. Well, especially if, if whenever you say it's okay, you just picture Larry David saying it. Like, you know, it's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> love it. All right, Mark. Awesome. All right. Next one comes from Carson B. And he asks, how often are you the one creating interesting space in a mix versus the tracks coming to you like that from a producer? And what are some of your favorite ways to achieve depth and dimension in a mix? Yeah, you know, uh, it's now is like the Wild West. I, I feel like the job as a mixer is like, you know, we all, we all have rough mixes. You know, some of them are good. Some of them are great. Some of them are not good at all. So I think it's, it's kind of like, you know, we have to sometimes roll up the sleeves and kind of create emotional uh, space or whatever emotion to the song. And sometimes it, the job is how not to fuck it up, right? And that's a, that's, that's a discipline that a lot of people don't have too because our egos are always engaged. So how is it that, why is it that they want to mix, but it sounds amazing and then you can put it out like this and maybe there's that five, 10% that you can add. Uh, and, and that's the beauty of mixing. What is that 10%? Because that 10% may be different for everybody. So I think that's the key in today's, uh, as, as a t you know, today's mixer, uh, deciphering what that means. So uh, as far as like, how do I achieve that? You know, there's different tricks. You know, I try to use the whole, you know, I go back to sports all the time. It's like good, like soccer teams. I'm going to go to soccer now. Like they use the feed, the whole pitch, you know, to really throw your opponents off. They go not only forward and back, but they use the whole width of the, the pitch. So for me, it's like I try to use the whole spectrum that I have. And, you know, and there's, as you know, you something dry will be more forward and then the perception of adding reverb and taking the direct signal out tends to add depth right so that's uh, that's kind of like the most basic one there's a lot of uh there's a lot of tools mid you know mid-side tools uh now that you can create uh width with you know uh but you know just know that it's like cooking too like if, if whatever you add if you add too much salt then you're gonna lose something else. So whatever you're adding to it, you're gonna lose something. So for example, if you're having a mix that's too wide, you're gonna lose the center information. So you're gonna lose the punch. So do you want a punchy mix or a sonically wide mix? And there's no right or wrong. Uh, so just just be aware that any, any action has a reaction, right? 
uh, in that reaction, you got to be mindful of what that's going to do to your song or the emotional connection you have. And not only to the song, but each section too. You know, one section may be more in the center, others here or with. And so, yeah, there's a couple, you know, tricks that we all use to kind of find that in, you know, in that dimension, as we call it. Awesome. Okay. On to our next question. Uh, Another one of our most upvoted. Uh, this one is from Swaf, and he says, love the Manny Reverb plugin and was wondering what physical units are those inspired uh, sounds from? The Bricasti, 100%. That's, uh, that was the only inspiration for that reverb. I mean, uh, not, no other reverb, uh, in my opinion, sounds quite like it. Uh, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's the best sounding reverb, it's just very unique. Uh, very different than an AMS or a Lexicon or even a, a nest cheaper SPX 90 or even a, but uh, to me, um, the Brocasti, I had never heard anything quite like that. And I always wanted to recreate that, but they're so expensive. <laughs> and I, if I used, you know, I, I, my goal was to have unlimited Brocastis. So <laughs> I spent like three years trying to hopefully recreate that sound, you know? Awesome. Okay, and we have a fun one in here. Uh, this one is from Ferdinando, and he asks, does Manny use Andrew Shep's plugins and the other way around? <laughs> he asks for Ooh, Andrew, wait, wait, would you use, use your omni-channel on? At, what, what, use what? Uh, Andrew? Does Manny, <laughs> Andrew's plugins. Andrew? Do you use Andrew's plugins? And some, does Andrew use your Some plugins? shithead is... <laughs> I have used them, of course. I mean, I use, you know, listen, I get all the, I get all the plugins, uh, you know, and I get to use them, you know, so I'm like, some I like more than others, but uh, Andrew's like, you know, he's my favorite mixer. <laughs> Such a good but liar. you haven't paid money for him. Though. No, but <laughs> I'll tell you one thing that's actually cool, and I'm wondering if you feel the same way. We were talking about how stuff comes in. It's already mixed. I mean, everything you get is already mixed. And I'm exactly like you. I want it where you left off. Because until that point, it's production. It's not mixing. But what it means is that you get stuff where you see plugins used in ways you never, ever would have thought of. Or a plugin you've owned for years that you've kind of forgot about or whatever. And you see something cool. And like, man, I'd totally forgotten about that thing. Yeah, yeah. It's a good level of discovery. And... And you see both. You see some really, really well-used plugins, and then you see the complete opposite too. Yes. Like, you know, I, I tend to I, I like it the, the same way as you. Like anything before that was production, and a lot of young. A piece of advice for young mixers, and there's a lot that make this mistake. They think that this is sort of their rough mix, and and got news for you, probably isn't. It's probably the producer telling you how to do it and what to do, which is in case uh, part of production. Um, and, uh, and then, and then you becomes, you know, then bec you become too precious, uh, and close to that, that sometimes you don't want to give those files away and it, it only makes you look really, really bad, you know, and, and you won't get the call back because the, uh, the artist is going to be like, what the fuck are you doing? Just send it. No, but I no fuck you just send it. And then they end up looking really bad. And I, it's, uh, it's really tough. I mean, cause I remember yeah. being in that position, but of course at that point you had to print everything cause you had limited pieces of gear and yeah. it was going on tape but it yeah it, if you have any goal in your mind other than the best record possible 
you're fucking up. And it's yeah. it's difficult yeah. and I get it, but you've it got difficult. to send the files. Yeah, it is beyond difficult because we've I think we've all been there. Uh, and at some point you just gotta okay, well I tried. Yeah. I mean look, the only the only like way I'd say the only sorry the only situation where you don't have to is if you were hired as a mixer to do it and then they right. want someone else to mix it that uh, next mixer should start with exactly what you had not your thing like yeah, prince yeah. is the only guy who's allowed to have remixes done before the album comes out and then take shit off your remix and put it on the record <laughs> he's it no one else is allowed to do that but, but, but you're right man you're a hundred percent right as a mixer you don't have to give it up but if you're if you happen to be the uh, recording engineer and you did through a rough mix you know that's like oh man just got to be careful because you're not going to get the call if you look like that one bitter dude. Yeah, and it goes the other way too. I've had gigs where someone would hire me to mix like two songs and then say, hey, can we have those sessions because I want to show my engineer so we can mix the rest of the record. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, <laughs> in that case, no. I was hired as a mixer. That shit flows downstream. In that case, um, I got something for you. Uh, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it is it is difficult because I've been on both sides of it. and But yeah, you've got to just, at what stage did you do the stuff? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and that's it. Damn, where's the wisdom? I love but it. But yes, I use Manny's plugins and they scare me. They scare <laughs> me with how easy. <laughs> and I love, I like, like the fact that you're, what I love about your reverb is like, there's a distortion knob on the plugin oh, yeah, and like, I, and that's awesome. So everybody talks about the Procassies. Oh, it's the only reverb that actually sounds like an analog. Re like it's always about the clean and everything right. where for me, what I love is that very low frequency thing, which is like the crazy stereo yeah. sub in the reverb, yeah. which yeah. is not natural at all. And I love that yeah. you wanted to recreate it so you could distort it. Or I could fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's what I wanted to do. Like, how can we just, it's too clean. How can we fuck it up? Yeah. I never would have thought that it was the Procasti. Like, that oh. just, it's not the way people think about it. So that's awesome. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny. I'm glad you caught that. <laughs> I didn't want to awesome. bash it. <laughs> okay. Our next question from Boban Biss is, do you Love mix loud? I know. Yeah. Uh, do you mix loud or silent? Uh, we'll go with quiet. <laughs> yeah. And uh, how many decibels do you mix? Thanks in advance. Best regards. Yeah. So, you know, it depends on the type of record. If it's like a clubby sounding record that I know it's going to be, it's going to have to have the booty on it. I start loud upstairs, the big monitors, so that I can get the low end right. And then after that, I kind of, the, the rest of the time, I try to mix, you know, I go, I don't listen to, you know, okay, as, as I'm thinking it, thinking about it, I don't stay in one volume for a long time. I try to change it up. So if I'm listening to the same level for hours, then, then I'm doing something wrong. So, because the perception of sound in your room too, as you're changing the, you know, the volume, some of the balances are, they're going to be perceived differently. So you got to be aware of how that's going to sound, and and of course nowadays we got you know these things, so you got to be aware of what's what what it's going to sound and feel on there as well. So I don't know how to answer it. I, I really there's no really rule of thumb for me. Is I just feel it. If I feel it, and I like we were saying earlier, if I'm kind of dancing to it, I kind of stay there until I'm not dancing anymore, 
And then I switch it and I dim it and I go super, super, super low and see what pokes out. And then after that, I go big and see what frequencies hurt my ears. And maybe I start toning some of those things, you know. So it's, so it's just, uh, yeah, I don't, you know, you shouldn't just listen to one level at all. You should really mix it up. And, and at least for me, it keeps me aware of the track, too, you know. Like, I think what happens is we get very comfortable and, and you're not working for it, you know. You just kind of go on with, and, you know, we, we get uh, getting a, you know, you can adapt to sound really easily, you know, like, so you got to be careful where if you're listening to one level the whole day, you're, you're getting used to it. So you're not kind of working on it. You're kind of just getting used to it. You're adapting to that. And if you're adapting to that, you're not, you may not be working for what you're trying to achieve. So. Well, let me ask you a related question. Um, so I'm assuming you still have your workflow where your first pass at the mix is on the K with all the analog stuff. Yep, yep. So when you're, are you still like mixing a song a day, even though you're coming back to things, obviously with the stems and doing tweaks, or are you able to jump around a little bit more? I, I'm able to jump around, you know, I, I, I feel like some mixes take me three, four hours, you know, and I don't second guess myself anymore. That's the, the going back to working smarter, not harder. Uh, if I'm a 25 year old mixer, I'm going to mix it for two more days and then I'm going to, the bell curve is going to happen and I may be on the low, you know, on the go, you know, kind of shooting myself in the foot. And I think as you get older and more, hopefully more wiser and more experienced, you know, when you're about to hit that curve, you know? And, uh, so for me is I'm, I won't do that to myself. If I feel like, uh, I feel like the most common question that we all get is like, when, when do you know it's done? Right. For me, is like I visualize flags, little flags, you know, popping up when you're working on it, and the next pass, and the next pass. There's less flags because you're kind of doing it, you're cha changing, you're kind of feeling better and better, and th there's less flags, less flags. And I go for like when there's only a few flags left, and then I pay attention to what those flags are, and then I may walk away from it. I come back, and if it's the same amount of flags or less flags, it might have been my mind messing with me. So now I have zero flags, and that's when I'm done. That's, I don't even second guess. I don't question anything. I'm done, ready for someone else's perspective, whoever that is, producer, artist, manager, uh, whoever that uh, gets it. And I move, and then I move on. And that process could be a three-hour process or it could be a three-day process. And, you know, and the beauty about being here at Larrabee is I don't, you know, uh, I don't have, I'm not, although it's on the clock, but it's not like if I do another day, I'm going to get, the client's going to get charged more, you know? Right. So, so I'm able to kind of take, you know, my time and, and, you know, not hopefully being more selective too, you know, I'm taking on less projects just to be, make sure that I spend the right amount of time and, and the right projects. Well, I got to say that the rest of us, thank you for that. Cause you were, you were getting them all. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I hope that helped. Definitely. Um, could you briefly explain that process you were just talking about, about the first pass on the K and uh yeah yeah so so oh okay so i'm uh i'm not in the boxes uh, i'm still i'm using the ssl as a big summing box <laughs> but i'm still doing a lot of inserts i'm still doing analog and i i'm just a hybrid right i go back and forth so the first pass will be off the desk so when i print what i call my mix point one will be off the desk and that's what go, that's what goes out to, to you know everyone uh after that we print stems you know uh and then if you know a couple of days later, you come 
backward changes or a week or an hour, whatever that is, then I'll do everything based on the stems. But, uh, you know, we bypass my whatever I have on the stereo bus processing so that I can reload it on the stem so that it sounds uh, like the desk, which I get it sounding, gosh, man, it's like 98%. It's like the, the good old days, remember when we used to recall mixes? They never came back oh, 100%. Fuck. I mean, <laughs> closer on an SSL, but on my Neve, man, forget oh, it. Gosh, I can't imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, humidity alone in the room will change, you know, some of the gear. So. Yeah. So from that point on, I stay in the stems. Yeah. Awesome. That lets you keep on working on multiple songs at once too. And... Yeah. Yep. And it means you've already printed your stems. <laughs> and yeah. Got all the processing, all the uh, analog, whatever I've done to them. Okay. And that brings us to our most upvoted question. And uh, if you're tight on time, we could save the rest for later. Okay. Um, okay. This one is from Isaac. And Isaac says, uh, could you share some of your thoughts about the mix bus, how you approach it in general, and some specifics as well, if you don't mind? Do you tend to use the same settings on your SSL compressor, or do they change from song to song? Some people like to set the release based on tempo of the song, for example, while others have their best settings. Yeah, you know, I'm not that analytical. I mean, uh, I don't I don't set it to tempo or anything. I just feel it out. If you know, it depends on the sound. It depends on the source. You know, if my kick is snappy and it's killing my stereo bus, you know, then I kind of change the settings. Of, you know, based on that. Um, I honestly, you know, I don't even look at the numbers. I just go ba 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 ba, and it feels good. I just leave it. So I I try not to look at any numbers or ratios or any of that feels good just make sure that when you're doing that you're compensating compensating for the volume too you know like if you, it may sound lower that doesn't necessarily mean it's not as good but maybe it's a little more compression maybe the release is taking a little longer um so i would say play with the emotion of how snappy you want it again i work on a lot of pop music so whether it's rock pop country pop you know uh, hip hop pop, you know, it's all it's it's all very uh, very uh, groove driven, you know. Uh, so I I pay attention to a lot of the groove on how my attack and release on the stereo SSL compressor. Now in the box, man, that's a whole that's a whole that's that that we can dedicate episode seven to to uh, to that because that's a whole fucking um, you know uh, again going to. Um, What's the, uh, uh, like if you have an Ozone 9 on your stereo bus as a, as a rough mix and the producer, maybe he did the rough mix. Unfortunately, you kind of got to stick to that, you know, because the moment you take that off, it just completely falls apart. Yeah. So that's where you got to be creative. And this is where you start making certain changes. And what I do is, you know, if that's, if I can do something better, then I'll put something better. But if I can, then I'm going to work with that and I'm going to EQ and shape and tone, uh, uh, color around that so that uh, it doesn't co completely collapse, you know, and, th and that to me that's again part of uh, production because imagine back in the, the good old days when we had uh, When we were baking bounces remember we had like say we had to a and b and where we got a background reel Right, and we do 22 tracks of backgrounds and we're panning them and EQing them and balancing and imagine now We bounce it to two tracks and we have a background uh, stem right of that imagine you sending me the complete 
taking that off is the equivalent to now me re-blending, rebalancing, re all the backgrounds, which I would be chasing my tail and I could never get it to the way it was before. So that is part of production. So who am I to say, oh, I hate the Ozone 9. Let me just take it off. But then it falls apart. So it's, it's again, it's a, it's a much deeper conversation on when and how. I think the art form is how you manipulate it and what you leave on, what you take off. Uh, a lot of the times, a lot of young engineers just, you know, because you have access to all these things, you, a, lot of, a lot of us are misusing them. So I try to make sure that whatever is needed, uh, it stays on there. And I do it in two buckets. One is, is it a production call or is it a sonic call, right? And if it's a sonic call, someone trying to EQ a kick, I trust myself that hopefully I'll be able to do a better job than that, as opposed to a production call. Uh, change or uh, like having that ozone multiband and doing a happy face on it that to me is a production call because it's at some point it's like man it sounds a little harsh and well can we control this in the mids or da 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 someone at some point made this production call uh, and it was stamped by the producer to say okay this is the rub that's going to go out to the world and once they all approve it send it to a mixer right so I feel like uh, you got to respect that but then you got to learn on what to use from it and what not to use from it so do you get some sessions that are so complicated because they've just been worked on so much that you can't even spread them out on the console or you'll always find a way to get it all coming up through the K? We always find a way. You know, my guys, you know, they spend, sometimes they spend days setting it up, you know. Uh, the art of, uh, I feel like Berkeley or some of those schools should have a, a class just done prepping files, you know, um, because that is an art form. <laughs> and most people, you know, don't do it right. So what we have to do is we, man, it takes us a long time to set it up, uh, uh, sometimes days to set them up. But so, tend to, no matter how how complex it is, we, I tend to get it within 48 channels, you know. Right. So when you, when you sit down, you could push the faders up and you would have all the crazy shit that had been going on, but you've got access to everything that you need that's the goal yeah right nice nice well i feel like we've gone way over what you said you had time for yeah so i pushed my meeting back so i i think uh yeah no it's good it's all good i love doing this let's do episode two three four whatever whatever it takes excellent i will i will email you in a while so i'm thank you for inviting me of course man and i I will be emailing you within seconds of us finishing to figure out when part two is going to be yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And uh, yeah, let's let's uh, let's get it. You know, next couple of weeks or so. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Cool. Well, what are you doing two weeks awesome. from today? We'll I'm talk. Be, I'm doing episode two. Right on. <laughs> I'll check with Rachel, man. I don't trust you to know your own schedule. <laughs> I'm like, man, he said he was going to be here. What the hell? <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Again. We'll run that by the boss. Thank you so yeah. much, Manny. This is amazing. It's so good to see you. We were talking about it before we went on it, but like, it's been it's been much longer than it should have been. I know, man. I miss miss you hanging out with you. So I hope to hopefully. See you in the flesh. Yes. Well, as soon as I leave my house, then we're much closer to that happening. So, all right, my man. Well, thank you again, guys. All right. Thanks, Mark. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. So now I'm going to mute and go to the thanks for watching, and that'll be that. I love talking to Manny, and I'm really glad that we're going to have a couple more times to sit down before this is done. Join me next week for the first part of my interview with Daryl Thorpe.